You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we're going to read Psalm 85 together. I'm going to read all 13 verses. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. This is God's Word and we pray that it becomes more than just ink on a page, but it becomes the very voice of God for the very people of God. This summer we've been walking through, as is our custom in the last few years, different psalms as the book of psalms you're staring at right now is an anthology it's a it's like an album with a hundred and fifty different records full of prayers songs hymns and poems we believe that ultimately as we've been walking through the book of the psalms the psalms are the bible's guide to self-expression Such that in a culture right now that exalts self-expression to the highest level and esteems it as like the the meter of truth, if you feel it, if it's in you, let it out, let it go, express it, assert yourself. And even if anyone else disagrees with you, right? And we we talk about this, this, this narrative, most of our important narratives can be seen They can be understood if you look at at the the stories told for children, the fables, the fairy tales, right? These stories, the narratives, they're they're told for us, right? Like, just watch a comic book movie, right? They're they're like for kids, but they're telling what we kind of hope for. And so this idea that we just express ourselves, I don't know, for example, maybe if you were teaching a kid that even if you're a pig, but think that you're a sheepdog, right? This is a real story. It's a movie called Babe. You don't... I'm not making this up. If you're a pig and you're like, no, I'm a sheepdog, even if everyone's like, no, clearly we're watching you, you're a pig. No, no, no. You assert yourself. You, you express yourself. You, you express that inner self that no one else knows about. But instead, we find here the Psalms say, don't suppress what's inside, but there's a guide, there's a way that by the inspiration of God's Spirit that we are to experience and express 
disorientation, fear, anger, as we even see here, disappointment. And so the Psalms are our language for this. Right? Psalm 119 says that, that your, your principles, your statutes, are the song in the house of my sojourning. And so I've been hopefully inviting you into, as, as is custom in the summer, the, the, the most popular artists drop their biggest hits and they become the psalms, or excuse me, the songs of the summer. And my hope is that, just like, you know, that thing that stuck in your head back in the day in, a, in the summer, right? Like the psalms would be the narrative of our lives. They would be the poems and the hymns, the things we're humming, such that even like Jesus who quoted Psalm 22 from the cross we would express this guiding word from God's Spirit. So Psalm 119, like I said, is the, the, the principles, the statutes of the Lord are, are the songs in the house of my sojourning. The house of my sojourning, that's like several thousand years ago, that's what they called a road trip, right? Until you've ever been on a road trip and you made a mixtape, this road trip called life has a mixtape and it's the Psalms. And so my hope is that it's been, uh, these things have been like the reverberations of your prayer Especially if you're in a spot where maybe, maybe you're walking through a season where like prayer seems ridiculous. Why would you talk to, to God as if he would hear you and the Psalms guide you into how to do that? And they begin to invite us to consider the possibility that God not only hears us, but he delights in hearing from us. The same way a father delights in hearing from his children. And so as such, we've seen this summer, the Psalms help us to have a right understanding of our guilt and shame such that we repent our way into God's presence. But then I want you to see in Psalm 85, not only have we seen this, we, this last summer uh, and, and begun to have hope, a biblical view of repentance, a biblical view of sorrow and lament, a biblical view of sadness and shame, but we also see here what we find in chapter or, or the 85th Psalm, a biblical view of revival. A biblical view of revival. Did you catch that? In the middle of this chapter, verse 6, there's kind of the crux, the turning point of the chapter. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? What I would tell you is that a biblical, review, a, a biblical view of revival is a view of revival that causes you to blush. Did you catch the poetic language at the end? Verse 10, there's a kissing scene at the end of this psalm. Such that when God brings about life where there once was death, there's this strange ooh and ah. There's this, there's this warm, fuzzy feeling inside. This feeling of intimacy and expression of that poetically here in this psalm. So I want us to have a biblical view of revival. You see this in the first three verses. There's this acknowledgement of God's past faithfulness. Such that a biblical view of revival is simply we recall God's saving work and joyfully anticipate Him reviving rebellious sinners yet, two times you saw it here, again. And so the first three verses, there's an acknowledgement of God's past faithfulness. He saved us before. And then the next few verses, the psalmist looks to God to deliver him again. And then at the very end, there's this glad anticipation of God's response. That's revival. Biblically defined revival. We acknowledge God's past faithfulness and we long for him to do it again and we anticipate his faithful response. 
So I want to define revival when we get to verse 6 here as we walk through this and maybe help you help define revival biblically by helping you see some bad, unhelpful definitions of how the word revival has been used. But I also want you to see here there's a recipe for revival that we as a group of people want to work toward. And then we notice in the closing, God brings together these disparate elements, makes something together that once was separate. So Psalm 85 is a prayer for the favor of God to restore and to forgive Now, there isn't a directly stated complaint in this psalm, like we've seen in some of the other ones, right? Sickness or or some sort of of despair, but, but there's not a complaint directly spoken here, but it seems to be assumed that they're in a in a particularly bad spot. And so we don't know if this psalm is is a hymn about when God's people in the first three verses were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt and Exodus, or we don't know if it's necessarily maybe a a post-exilic psalm, that is a psalm about when when God's people were brought out of their their deportation, they were brought out of exile to Babylon, where they've been scattered, they've brought back, we don't know. And so simply a lot of the times the Bible begins to invite us into these reflections that are somewhat timeless. And so you might say, well, is this psalm about how God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, or is it about he delivered his people from the Babylonians, or is it about how God delivered us from sin, death, and hell? And the answer, the Bible often answers is, yeah, yeah, all of the, when God does a thing, it always points to his nature and character. And this psalm is, is just as appropriate for, for remembering God's deliverance of his people in Egypt, his deliverance of the dispersed people from the Babylonians, and then delivering you and I from our enemy. We say, yeah, that, that's what God does. Whether you're talking about then, now, or in the future, this psalm says, yeah, that's what God does. And this song closes with this poetic expression. The result of God's presence. Did you catch that? There'll be power and glory. There'll be faithfulness and love. And all of these things will be in abundance. So here's what I want to encourage you with this psalm. Our current sense of affliction, whatever you brought in to this place, whether you came to this place this morning and you know you're not measuring up. And you, you know, like, this, you know, like, you have this feeling, God's surely waiting till I mess up one more time and He's going to be done with me. Or maybe you come into this room and you're just full of doubt and skepticism. There is no God. This, this guy in the front blabbing about God. This, there's nothing to hope in. This, all we have is what's in front of us. Or maybe you come into this room and you have a weird sorrow that you're covering. Maybe you think you're measuring up. In fact, maybe being here this morning is checking off the list of things that you need to do to measure up. But here's what I know about you. You have a burden worse of all. You're a slave to that imaginary standard more than anyone else. So whether you don't think you've measured up or whether you're terrified and you're doing things in order to measure up, that affliction shouldn't cause us to Stop looking and recollecting God's goodness towards us, His grace for us. And we're meant to be invited to recall with praise and gratitude the grace He's promised to pour out for us in the future. So in this particular passage, you see in the first few verses, this an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness in the past. And this is really important. Remembering God's unmerited favor confronts do more, try harder religion. First three verses. Lord, you were favorable. 
right? That's what makes you good. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Remember Jacob? Remember him? His name is like a code word, slippery, slimy, scheming. He betrays his brother and lies to his father and schemes to get the birthright from his older brother Esau. And instead of God coming to destroy the liar, the snake, right? He takes this scheming Jacob and he restores him. Not only to his brother, but to himself. He says, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Don't miss, don't miss the, the language being used there. The person doing all the work is you. It's spoken to God. Lord, you're the one who's doing this. God supplies all the favor, all the forgiveness, all the mercy. And what does he say we, re, we, we, we bring? We bring the scheming, all the sin, the iniquity. We deserve all the anger. And that's really important. Because remembering God's favor towards us confronts what I would call a do more, try harder religion. And let's be clear, some of you are in this room and you don't think that's you, but that's why you're here. Like you really wish right now, I would, I mean, this is what religiosity, isn't it? You know, it, it's, it's what it is, right? You, you're just like, man, I've been awful. I just need, somebody needs to make me feel bad today. I just need somebody to make me really feel bad about how bad I am. Maybe, maybe they'll make me feel bad enough to where I'll stop being bad. And right now, you're wishing I would get to the part where I say, do more, do better, try harder. You're going to get it right this week. You've got this. But I want you to know that's a prison. And religiosity loves to build thicker, higher walls around that prison. But what do we find here is the source of hope. Not that you will do better, you won't. Not that you, by means of your own effort, will earn some sort of favor. You won't do that either. But, joy upon joy, God will do perfect. He, in His goodness, will supply all that you need. You don't have to do better. God's perfection is enough. You don't have to earn His favor. His favor is a gift freely given to those who humble themselves before Him. And once you realize you can't get any of these things on your own, did you catch that? You want to try to stop making God be angry at you for the bad thing you did. Good luck. And all I would say, the Christian church sits back and goes, good luck, we'll be here when you get back. I know that's like, I know that's like, maybe if I could just do better this week, then, then everything will be okay. Once I get over the horizon, once I achieve that thing, once I finally achieve that level of comfort or success, then I'll have made it. And all I'll tell you is good luck. Well, you're welcome when you get back. And we'll, in the midst of that sorrow, when you realize you can't be good enough or do enough, the grace of God will be especially refreshing to you. We acknowledge our only hope is in God alone. He's our only hope. And we recall this. Don't miss that. He lists after this, a whole lot of things that are really terrible. They seem to be missing. And so this is for us important because being a Christian is not never being sad or mad. The Psalms confront that, don't they? But being a Christian is being never without hope. It's not that you'll never be sad or never be mad. It's just that even in your sadness, even in your anger, you'll never be without hope. Why? Did you read verse 1 through 3? Because God is a saving God. God loves, He loves showing favor to the undeserving. 
God delights in giving gifts to people that don't deserve it. And our hope is to look back and go, look, we've had it so good in the past. Look at what God has done. And now, beginning in verse 4, he says, Let's, please God, do it all over again. This do more, try harder religion says that ultimately joy is within your grasp. It's a day or moment in your life. And then I want to encourage you, like our hope is already determined in the past. On a day when an innocent man bore a cross up a hill and died a betrayed death on our behalf and then walked victoriously out of the grave, leaving it empty. That's the moment. It's finished. It's done. And I know for many of you, in an American Christian culture, that largely wants to encourage you to do better and try harder, to make it more about you, which is exactly what the enemy wants you to make your life about. I, I, know, I want you to hear very clearly. I get to stand up here and say, no, no. It's not about you. And that's actually a good thing. God's mercy for you is a cause for celebration. God's finished work for us in Jesus is a cause for joy. I have to point out something, though. The, the, the language that's used over and over and over again, did you catch that even all the way to verse 5 about God's anger? God's wrath and judgment are always the result of His righteousness and our moral failure. Now, it's important because we, we regularly don't like the picture of a God who's angry. But just know we're uncomfortable with it because we're kind of projecting our own flaws onto God. We're kind of making our own concept. And, and the Bible calls that an idol when you make God into your own image or any image for that matter. And, and notice the ways in which we often are made uncomfortable about the anger of God are because we tend to project our anger onto God. But, but don't miss something here that the psalmist wants us to see. The anger of God is actually good news. So think, think of the most awful, horrendous, and terrible thing that anyone has ever done to you. And I don't know for some of you, that's the thing that's like, you carry that into every room you walk into. That thing that someone did, that awful thing that someone, they betrayed you, they abused you, they took advantage of you, they used you. Now what if I told you God's not bothered by that? What if I told you on that day when someone abused you, took advantage of you, God's like, nah. Now, what if I told you on that day when that person took advantage of you and harmed you, he, like a possessive, jealous, the Bible tells us, father looks at his children and has fury for their enemies. And you cannot even scratch the surface of anger towards that person. Think about it, like we talked about this in a, a biblical view of justice from Psalm 82, right? Like, if I tell you the atrocities of like world dictators, right? If I told you about awful things, millions of people that died under Pol Pot, or if I talked to you about millions of people who died under Hitler, what if I just told you like, hey, God's not that worried about it? But you'll see that if God's not angry, he's not good. And you know this. That's why you get so mad when that thing that you love is threatened. And where do you think that came from? Where'd that righteous anger come from? It came because you were made in God's image. And here I want to tell you this, this anger, I know it scares you because you often think like, oh, he's going to be mad at me. Yeah, except that he brings his mercy for his people. And his anger 
is good news for us because His anger is poured out on His enemies. And the anger that we deserve was absorbed by Jesus. Don't miss, there's, there's, there's a character of God on display here. Now, we don't like that because our anger tends to, tends to go into disproportionate responses, right? Our anger leads us into spitefulness. Our anger leads us into, into revenge. And we, and we always overreach, right? Whenever justice is in our hands, it's always like not enough or, or it's too much. We always, we, when we get back, it's always a little bit too much, right? That's why I'm against pranks. All pranks escalate into vandalism. Because that, because that, do it, yeah, go ahead, do the thing, right? Put, you know, put the Vaseline on your friend's thing or pull the prank, scare them, jump out, right? It's going to lead to vandalism because our view of vengeance, it always escalates and it always like outdoes because we can't ever settle with real righteous justice. So just notice our flawed and skewed view of anger and justice hinders us from being comforted by God's anger against sin. Fortunately, his anger is perfect. Your anger is not qualified by your perfect holiness, but His is. And so we remember God's unmerited favor. We, we have comfort that God's anger is ultimately poured out on unrighteousness. And we have confidence in it. Before we move on from those first few verses that, that kind of expound God's mercy and His anger, just think of it this way. If the whole world knew every single secret about you that God knows about you, everyone would abandon you. If every, it was public, all the things that you would love to keep a secret from the people in this room, if everyone knew all the stuff that God knows about you in your own heart, they would abandon you, they would forsake you. But that makes the mercy that's described in the first three verses that comes from God, who keeps His promise to never leave you or forsake you, all that much more stunning. Look, if everyone else knew all those secrets, that'd be a problem. But God knows them. He was there. He was present when it happens. And so to to declare His mercy is all the more stunning for us. God's wrath judgment are always a result of his righteousness and our failure we bring the sin but he brings the righteousness and even the mercy then verse four turns into petition restore us again i love that word and we see it again in verse six to the climax that is verse six did you catch that will you not revive us again so let's walk through this 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 is the picture of revival irenaeus put it this way a church father the glory of god is man fully alive. That's the glory of God. There's full life. And that's when Jesus comes along and says, rest easy, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I have real life. And in me, you will never experience anything but resurrection. And so we serve a God whose delight is to actually draw us out of darkness, out of death, and give us new life. And He likes to do it. This will blow your mind. More than once. Again. So let's start just real briefly. I'm from a culture where the word revival in the mouths of Christians isn't always helpful. Okay? And so I remember, like, I don't know if maybe you know this, if, if you're like new to the church, you're, you're fortunate because there's a whole bunch of church baggage you haven't had to endure, right? But I remember like seeing signs on the outside of a church building that said like, revival Every night this week except Friday, right? As it like, like 
There's going to be revival. People are going to, you know, like, life where there once was death, except for Friday. Not Friday. Nope. Nope. That's not going to happen on Friday. And you begin to see kind of the absurdity of it. And so there's some resources that would help you think through this. One of my favorite is a, a historian by the name of Ian Murray, Revival and Revivalism. And, and what we find here is the, the concept of biblical revival, but it butts up against what we would call in the last couple centuries revivalism or a revivalistic view of things. And a revivalism is this view that if you, if you do these few things, you can somehow like make Revival happen. You can make dead things come to life. God, God's going to be obligated. He's going to be in your debt and must do this if you do these things, right? So some of you know this. I have a love-hate relationship with youth camp, right? But it's, I, I love that God works in a profound way, but here's the problem. It's fake. It's that you don't live there. Like unless you, st- like at the end of youth camp, if everyone just moved there, that's cool, right? Because I mean, that's like a, that's like this little embassy of God's grace, and the, right? But they don't. You have to go back. And so I have this love-hate relationship for what God does, but also like parts of it that are contrived. And if you've ever been in this, you know this, right? If you just put a bunch of, of, of kids or teenagers in the same place, like if, particularly if they're boys and girls, put them close together where they're just like, ah, all the boys and girls around me, right? right? And, and, then, and then they pray the Bi- they pray and read the Bible all day and they don't sleep such that by Thursday night, I guarantee you everybody's going to be repenting. Every, we're just like, there's going to be weeping and crying. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. And I love, God works in the midst of that. But you know as well as I do, some of that's just fake, right? Like, oh, my, my, my. what's wrong? And, and you're like, I, just, I don't know. You're like, you didn't sleep last night, okay? <laughs> you drank three Red Bulls and you've been jumping off the bunk beds. Like, that's, I cry too. I <laughs> play a soft, like, worship song. I don't sleep for three days. <laughs> right? So again, I don't want to dismiss that. When you put people together, surround them, surrounded by God's word, amazing things will happen. But there's a difference between revival that only God does and revivalism, which is a contrived effort. It's important. Because the revival that's described here, where do I get that? Why would I go on a rant on that? Right? Why would I do that? Because the focus of the syntax here in verse 6 is not on revival. Did you catch it? It's on you. The emphasis of that sentence is not revival. It's you. Revival does not happen when you aim for it. Revival happens when the Lord works. And so, I mean, here's what I would say. Like this, by all means, let's, let's have youth camp, right? Just know there ain't no praying going on in the prayer garden. You know that, right? Some of you have never been to youth camp. You don't know what I'm talking about. There's a prayer garden at youth camp, and there's no praying going on in there. Hey, girl, let's go pray. No, don't. Say no. It's, I've been in youth ministry. It's not, it's, don't do it. Right? And we could, I'm not saying we shouldn't get a tent and hold a revival. Right? I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should do that every night this week. If that's what God calls us to do, let's do it. But you got to get this square in the center of your own heart. If God doesn't move, things stay dead. And we find here the formula for revival is that God's people long for it and he grants it. That's it. We long for it and he grants it. Revive us. It's actually God's 
to God's glory, to bring from the dead. And this is amazing for us. Because the next word, did you catch that? Again. Again. Now, it's not that what they had experienced in the past in this psalm wasn't real. They had experienced God bringing them from the dead, saving them literally. It's just that they had squandered it, which is just what we do. And they were in desperate need of God to do it again. This is amazing. Though that word again there twice in verse 4 and in verse 6 might be the greatest source of hope for you because I know for some of you, you can conceive of God being gracious to you once. But the thought that God would forgive you of the same sin again and again and again and again, that, that starts to blow your mind. You can conceive of God forgiving you once. And some of you, at a certain point in your life, you thought you, thought you had experienced God's grace. But here's what I can tell you about like the older saints in the room, and they can convince you of this. Older saints, it's hard to hide. If you, if you spent your whole life in religiosity trying to earn God's favor, you become a pretty crotchety old person, right? So some of you older folks, you can't hide it. We can tell if you believe the gospel. It's, did you catch the, the, the source? The, or the, did, you, did you hear what happens after it? Rejoicing. There's joy. But if you meet an older saint who knows how they have tested God's patient for decades, something about, something about the rejoicing that happens, and you begin to realize at the end of 2 Peter, right? May we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We actually grow in grace because his grace just keeps abounding. And friend, this is the grace of God. Not just that he forgave you, he will forgive you again and again. And I know some of you, you're just frustrated, you're tired of falling prey to the same failure. You're tired of confessing the same sin over and over again. And you know why that frustrates you? Because you're secretly hoping in yourself. You're secretly hoping in one of a few things. One of them, you're hoping you're just not that bad. And I can be happy and joyful if I'm just not that bad. And he, what does it say? Our hope is, that, is not that you're just not that bad. Our hope, that God, our hope is that God revives us again. Or maybe you're hoping, I'm good enough to do it this time. I'm going to get it right this time. I'll never sin again. And that's not our hope. That is a hopeless prison to live in. Our hope is that God, his mercy is so great, he'll forgive us. Again. Again. You cannot outsin the grace of God. And I know your despair over like your sin that's repetitive, it seems humble. It's actually the most narcissistic thing ever. You're saying, my sin is greater than the power of God. My ability to sin is more sovereign than the creator of the world. So I know it looks like humility when you're like, oh, I'm just a, uh. that's, that's, that's narcissism. It's pride saying, my sin is too great for Jesus. And the way you'll know that that's the case, did you catch it? You won't have joy. You won't have joy. But for those of us who have been revived, by miraculous means, right? Like, why, why, would, God, why would God save me? Why would God do that? What do we do? We rejoice. Well, that's crazy. Why would he do it again? That's merciful. And it's God's pleasure to bring people to life. Ezekiel tells it this way in chapter 18. 
speaking for the Lord in his judgment, he says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that what? He should turn from his evil way and live? The Old Testament repeats this refrain. God has no desire to destroy, but instead his desire is to call the wicked back to himself. He loves it. I know when you and I forgive, it's like half-hearted, right? Like, oh, all right. I guess I'll forgive you. I dare you to believe that God actually delights in forgiving you over and over and over again. And maybe some of you in the room, they're saying, well, well, that just means God is letting sinners get away with it. Yeah? Except for what Jesus did on the cross, where no one, no sin was overlooked, but the entire wrath of God was poured out on him. I dare you to believe that God will revive you and forgive you again. Again. Now Paul says, I don't, I don't dare you to out-sin him. Right? Romans 5, should, so should we just keep sinning so that the grace should abound? No. Meganoito. So in, in the Greek, that's like blankety-blank. No. You don't, that's not what real, that's not like what real mercy and grace causes us to do. It causes us to what? It causes us to long for him and rejoice in him. But friend, this is what you'll find. You can't out the grace of God. Did you catch this? We, we have His promise in the past. We long for Him to respond. And this is really crazy. In spite of the mess that we're in, in spite of the mess that we've caused, our future is bright. Did you catch that? The Lord's going to speak. He's going to speak what? Peace to His people, to His saints. Will you not revive us again? Show us your steadfast love. And then in verse 9, salvation will come near to those who fear him and his glory will return. Joy is the result of God bringing restoration. So friend, here, here's what maybe for some of you this is. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but like if you were really honest and you asked people around you, hey, am I marked by increasing joy? Just ask the people who love you and know you. Unless you've kicked them all out of your life. And then in which case, come talk to me. We'll, I'll answer for you. Just ask, hey, am I marked by more patience, more love, and more kindness? As you hang out with me, am I less cynical? Am I less skeptical? Because joy is the overflow from experiencing God's grace. Now, I don't mean shallow, superficial happiness, right? I don't mean like, oh yeah, everything, you know, everything's awesome, that's great. No, I, I, I mean like genuine joy, even in the midst of sorrow. The world is falling apart, and yet I know my Redeemer lives. I have hope and joy in Him. Injustice is rampant. Sin is broken and destroyed the world, and yet I know my King is coming back. Because surely his salvation is going to be near to those who fear him. Glory will dwell in our land. And then something amazing happens. Things that are different come together. When we eagerly anticipate God's answer, something happens. Surely, verse 9 says, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. One of the best ways to assess your experience of God's grace in your life is to assess your anticipation. Like, let me just put it in terms of now, right in this moment. 
What did you expect when you got up this morning and came into this building? Did you catch that? Let me hear what the Lord will speak. Did you walk into this room anticipating the Lord's going to speak to me? The Lord's going to meet me. Because your experience of God's grace will overflow not only into joy, but into anticipation. And so here's what I know right now. If you're sitting in this room right now, and you just can't wait till I wrap it up and we go out to lunch, right? You can't wait. I love you. I love you, but you are in danger. You're in danger. And your annoyance with the world, your impatience with the world is evidence that you've never experienced God's patience with you. And you think that there's something better to do later because you don't know that God doesn't see you that way. He's not looking for the better thing to come along. He's delighting in you and restoring you. So as a church, what would it look like if we eagerly anticipated all the things that God promises? Like, what would it look like? Again, I'm just speaking today because today is today. What if this morning you got up and you, were, you really knew you would meet the Lord here, that we would open his word and his word would do what? Give me life. And it would cause me to rejoice, but my, my life's a mess. I know, and yet I have joy in him. Did you anticipate that? Did you eagerly await that? What are you looking forward to this week? Is it that God would revive you and pour out his steadfast love on you such that you would be unshakable in every circumstance? I just know this from my own experience. My boredom, my boredom with the things of the Lord, whether it's the scripture. Now we, on a regular basis, we want to stretch our attention span for the preaching and teaching of God's word because we just have bad attention spans, me above all. But I just know my boredom and my cynicism about some of these things is actually rooted in the lack of joy in God's grace. And maybe that's the case with you too. And maybe the next distraction isn't what would get you out of this. Maybe you begin to see, man, the Lord's good. He's merciful. And he's even merciful towards me. He's patient with me when I'm impatient. Have you considered the possibility that God's not bored with you? Because we begin to anticipate what God will do. And what is it that he will do? Did you catch at the very end? He's going to bring different things together. He's going to bring love, faithfulness. He's going to be righteousness and peace. Now, I love this language here. It becomes poetic, right? And art is hard to explain. Metaphors are hard to fully explain, right? When someone's like playing an instrument or playing a song, it's almost impossible to explain that to someone, right? If I was like, hey, describe your favorite song, whatever you would do to describe it would probably make us hate that song. Because there's something ineffable. And, and the psalmist here is appealing not only to our mind, but our heart. It's not only appearing to our thoughts, but also our emotions. And so, like, these things work together. And there's this inexpressible, inexhaustible joy that you can try to paint a picture of. All you can do is point at it. And he uses metaphorical language. Did you catch it? Peace and then springing up from the ground. Peace will kiss righteousness, and then faithfulness will spring up from the ground. Did you catch that? There's this picture of two different things kissing one another, and then like grass sprouting up from the ground. So two things. 
This anticipation, knowing that God's going to do this, is beyond what I can explain to you. And even now, if I just told you, like, hey, what's it going to be like when the King Jesus comes back? I'm going to be like, it's going to be like when righteousness and peace kiss. And there's part of you that's like, huh? <laughs> right? I don't know. It's going to be great. I remember how uncomfortable my parents made me feel in the kitchen when they thought we weren't looking and they would kiss. Until I realized that's awesome. I hope my daughters get to complain about that one day too. Like, Mom, my mommy and daddy, they just love each other so much. <laughs> and what once grossed me out, I now recognize is an amazing picture of love and faithfulness. There's a second thing. Faithfulness will spring up. The language it uses is like grass. Uh, one day I want to have like a golf course for a lawn, Right? I mean, I want it like I, I don't want to just look green from the road. I want to be able to walk out and play and like walk around on my grass. This is going to blow your mind. Barefooted. Barefooted. Without any other weird things, it would hurt. I have, I have very tender feet. <laughs> one day I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk on the lawn. I'm just, one day, I mean, when, I get, when I have the time and, and make this, I'm going to have a lawn that's like pristine and we're going to walk on it barefooted. Did you catch that? One day God's going to do something and his faithfulness will be like a calm, cool lawn that we can walk on barefooted. God brings different things together. Now you know this is true. Ephesians 2 describes that very thing that God does by bringing separate things. Namely, God who is holy and perfect and us. They're the opposite of God's holiness and perfection. And so, verse 11 Ephesians chap or, uh, of chapter 2, Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called the uncircumcision. That is, you were the unholy pagans by what was called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Did you see that? There were two different things. There was Jesus over here, and there was you over here. Right? There was God's people over here, and then there was you not in that crowd. And you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of God's promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen to this. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one Remember the two separate things, Jesus and us, the, the God's people and the Gentiles? He has made them one and He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself not separate things, but one new thing, a new man in place of those two separate things, thus making peace. Did you get it? Did, did you... Did, did you see the poetic fulfillment of the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God, and the peace of God kissing together? That He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Did you catch that? God delights in taking things that are separate and bringing them together. He delights in taking His holiness and uniting it in Christ to our filthiness. He likes taking, did you catch that? He likes taking aliens, wanderers, and making them family. He likes making those that know that they're far from him and drawing them near. Friend, don't miss this good news. 
This promise for us, true revival, is made available to us in Christ. When now when we draw near to the Father, we don't draw near afraid of His anger or wrath, but we draw and draw near to Him anticipating Him making us one with Himself in Christ. I dare you to believe that today. I dare you to consider the fact that you are invited to the Father by Christ. I dare you to consider that what you consider that what you think is disparate and separate you and the presence of the father is one and the same in Christ how do we respond in the life of our church there are many ways we respond to what it is that god has done but on a regular basis we respond by commemorating and being reminded of god's covenant promise fulfilled for us in Christ did you catch that We were made one. The dividing wall of hostility was torn down by God's sending His Son to offer His body and His blood for us. So Paul's word to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives us a way to commemorate this dividing wall of hostility being torn down. Verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, I love that, right? It wasn't, it wasn't when the disciples had their act together. It was, it was in the middle of their betrayal and abandonment. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this, this, you rebellious, betraying God, this is my body, and it's broken for you. He says, now do this in remembrance, not of your sin and failure, but of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, his sufficient, wrath-satisfying death, his justifying and adopting death until he comes. Now listen to our response. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Notice that in the presence of God in Psalm 85, did you catch that? In the presence of God there is wrath towards sin and there is mercy towards God's people. But the presence of God doesn't guarantee one or the other. It's the presence of our faith and trust in him that guarantees our blessing. Apart from that trust, did you catch that? We actually celebrate our own judgment and condemnation. So in just a minute here, I'm going to pray. And, and while I'm praying, the, uh, our ushers are going to come and they're going to take this morning's offering. And we're going to be faithful to this text and we're going to respond by examining our own state. We're going to examine uh, the place where we're trusting. And so And so we're going to be invited to to share in the body and the blood of Christ and take communion together. Where you would be reminded at a table of the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. But remember that the body and the blood of Christ is offered to those of us who by faith have been drawn near to the Father. It's a gift. Apart from faith, it's actually just a reminder of our own condemnation. But, But to know that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient is joy 
And so someone will break a piece of bread and declare to you a mystery. In spite of all your sin, in spite of all your rebellion, the body of Christ, broken for you. And you'll take that piece of bread, you'll dip it into the juice, thereby drinking of the cup, and someone will declare a mystery over that cup in your life. In spite of your sin and all your rebellion, he will revive you again. The cup, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Now this supper is for repentant sinners. And so if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, then by all means watch us. Be invited to celebrate the gospel and song together, but, but in an act of courage, please refrain. If you're living in secret sin, if you're running from sin instead of confessing it, then, then today's the day you repent and worship God. Don't partake in the elements. Don't eat and drink condemnation on your head. But for the rest of us who have experienced God's reviving grace again and again, this strange, what might otherwise be an unsatisfying snack, will be the words of sustaining life to our souls. Let us pray together. God, we thank you so much that we know you delight in bringing dead souls to life. You delight welcoming your children back to you again and again and again. We have not tested your patience we have not worn you out, but instead we come to you knowing that you delight for us to return to you. If there's some in this room, maybe they have just, they're certain that God's anger, like you're angry with them and you're going to destroy them. Would you even now begin to open the eyes of faith in their own heart that they might receive as a gift this good news that you're not out to destroy us, but instead you're out to revive us. You're out to make us new. Maybe for the rest of us, we know that, but we've just lost a sense of anticipation. And frankly, we're just bored. God, we confess that we think there are better things that are more entertaining or more interesting. There are more worthy things. Would you help us to be revived, and be reminded, not to slip back into folly, but to be drawn near to you again? We thank you for your mercy on us. We pray especially over the life of our church that we might be a people who desire genuine revival. We wouldn't try to contrive or control your work, but instead we would be a people that completely depends on your mercy and grace for life and joy. We pray especially for that in these moments as we respond in worship and we respond by experiencing and taking into our body the very reality of your sacrifice on our behalf. This can only happen by the power of your Spirit granted in the gift of faith. Do this for us now in Jesus' name. Amen.